0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple
1: Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brennan Buddha. In this episode, we are talking about Jeff Vandermeer's novella, The Transformation of Martin Lake. This story can be found in The City of Saints and Madmen, published in 2001. It's a collection of novellas and other material about the city of Ambergris, uh, and this is the story that we are covering from that
0: collection. This story is also available in a, a book that's relatively new as we're recording this, that is simply called Ambergris, or Ambergris, uh, that has this book, The City of Saints and Mad Men, and then the, the two novels, Shriek and Finch, but... Uh, I will say that that omnibus volume there does not actually have all of that peripheral uh, stuff that you were just talking about, Brandon. So it's actually only got half of what is contained in this book. Unfortunately, I think this book is itself out of print. But uh, so that may be where people have read it or where you can find it if you listen to these episodes and are intrigued and want to check that out but actually haven't. Uh, but as Brandon said, this is a novella. It's a fairly hefty novella. It's almost 100 pages long. So we are going to do three episodes on this story. We're going to take two episodes to to recap, and then we're going to have one discussion episode following that. Also, this month, if you're with us on Patreon, you've got access to another weird fiction novella. This one is Nadelman's God by T.E.D. Klein. That's what we put up for our uh, monthly Patreon episode. This is a, a real classic. The, the collection that T.E.D. Klein did that has the story Nadelman's God is a real classic of weird fiction. I think there's a lot of sort of urban legend around around this story. T.D. Klein is kind of the, uh, I don't know, the Thomas Pynchon or J.D. Salinger of weird fiction. And uh, this was a lot of fun to do. I really enjoyed Nadelman's God. So I'd encourage people who are not already with us on Patreon to uh, come join us so you can check that out.
1: Yeah, that was a great episode and a really great story. I'm glad we read it. And uh, as we talked about, that's a story that's difficult to find or to track down. And this is a great way to encounter that story if you can't find a copy. So, yeah, join us on Patreon and uh, check out Natalman's God by T.E.D. Klein. But we are going to talk about the transformation of Martin Lake today. This is a really strange story. It's beautiful, though. I loved it. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of the portrait by Gogol, which we covered also, which is to say, it has like elements of. I don't know, the kind of Russian bleakness to it that you uh, (laughs) might find in in, in any type of Russian novel or story from the 19th and early 20th centuries. But yeah, this story is really a lot of fun too. Uh, We follow pretty much a cranky protagonist as he tries to make it as an artist in the rough city of Ambergris, which I don't know, some of the way it's described, I'll point out, reminds me of living in Fishtown in the early... 2010s. (laughs) But uh, Glenn, let's get into the story. Yeah, let's
0: do it. And I'm so glad you pointed out the relationship that this story might have to the portrait by Gogol. I mean, that is basically going to be, I think, uh, at least one quarter of the year in review episode, like already is going to be mashing those two (laughs) stories up and and taking a look at the way these two different weird fiction writers have uh, written about artists. Uh, That'll be a lot of fun, but uh, that's putting the cart in front of the horse, so to speak. So uh, let's do things in order here. But before we really get into this story at all, I do want to say that this story is actually fairly unusual for this show in that it takes place in. A secondary world. It's a setting entirely made up by Vandermeer. It doesn't have any spatial or temporal relationship with our world. It's just totally a fantasy world. We do not need to know a whole lot going in, but that does mean that we are going to have to stop and, and look around at this world from time to time. And that's also part of the real joy of this story is learning about this fictional city of Ambergris and the fictional world that the, the city uh, resides in as well. But the real reason that I bring this up here at the top is that Vandermeer opens this story with two epigrams. But these epigrams, you know, epigrams is not a thing that we're unfamiliar with here on this show, but these epigrams are made up by Vandermeer, so we're not going to do our usual thing of explaining who wrote the lines, what the context is, and so on. But I do think, still, that we should just read them into the microphone and think about what they are priming us for. First up is three lines of poetry by someone named Kamenimi, and this is what he writes. A fresh river in a beautiful meadow, imagined in his mind the good painter who would someday paint it. And here's the second one. Uh, these are some lines that were engraved on Martin Lake's memorial in a public square, uh, engraved at his request. Here are the lines. If I was strange and strange was my art, such strangeness is a source of grace and strength. And whoever adds strangeness here and there to his style gives life, force, and spirit to his paintings. So yeah, the uh, question is,
1: Brandon, what, what are these preparing us for? What are, what are these epigrams doing here at the top of the story? Well, the second one is pointing us to the fact that Martin Lake is going to be a painter of the strange. We'll get, as the story continues, a real sense of his style. And I'll point that out, And as I'm sure you will, Glenn, in the recap, how his style might align with other art schools that have come before him that are more related to our world. But part of this story is a sort of critique of Martin Lake's art and also gives us a sense of the art history of Ambergris, which is super cool. Uh, So what we know from this line is that Lake paints strange things, and uh, he thinks that strangeness is good. What's cool about this is that the truth of what's strange in this world is actually stranger than (laughs) the... uh, (laughs) ideas that the art historian and critic is able to come up with this first line talks about representative art in some way about how the world itself is is priming itself for the work of the painter to be represented it's kind of a backwards notion and um first of all we know that rivers don't have imaginations they are inanimate But if Rivers did have spirits, and perhaps in this world that Ambergris is in, they do, that they want to be represented beautifully. There's a sense of vanity. So it's really about the animating spirit that speaks to a painter or an artist of any kind that calls to them to represent the object. And so that's what I got from that that first one, is that Lake is going to be called in to see some sort of animating spirit that he otherwise is missing. In this story, it has to do with the quality of light in Ambergris that he quite he can't quite capture, but he's trying to, and something is going to finally allow him to capture that. And I think at the end, when we
0: get to the discussion episode in particular, that we're going to want to think about these lines, the, the two pairings of these epigrams. I, I mean, uh, in terms of Vandermeer's understanding of what is art for like what do artists do for us why do we have people who are painters who just paint pictures just things that look pretty or look interesting that we want to look at but that don't serve any uh, any practical function and of course that might also be something we would wonder about storytellers right about novelists people like Vandermeer himself right and i think that that's something that's happening here right that there's a sense in this first epigram you know this uh, fresh river in a beautiful meadow imagined in his mind the good painter who would someday paint it there's this idea that what matters about the world actually is that we humans are here to appreciate it through Art and and other other ways of in, of engaging with it, but that that's in some sense what maybe it is for. But we'll we'll see we'll see how that really bears out here in the, the story. <laughs> and uh, you, you hinted at this already, Brandon. But the, the structure of this story is really the interweaving of two narratives. One of them is going to be a totally standard third person past tense story. This is the story about Martin Lake. It's uh, going to be about his transformation. That's what it says in the title, though. You know, what does transformation mean? It's another question that we're going to want to be asking later. Later. The other narrative here, the other bit of this is an essay on Martin Lake that is written sometime after his death by Janice Shriek, who's an owner of an art gallery. The essay is principally concerned with Lake's painting entitled Invitation to a Beheading. And that essay is actually how the story begins. And although we are very definitely not just going to read the entirety of this 100 page story to you, I do want to read this opening paragraph so that you'll have a sense of the flavor of this account because I think that the, the tone here, the, the flavor of this essay is really a big part of what it is doing in the story. Few painters have risen with such speed from such obscurity as Martin Lake, and fewer still are so closely identified with a single painting, a single city, What remains obscure, even to those of us who knew him, is how and why Lake managed the extraordinary transformation from pleasing but facile collages and acrylics to the luminous oils, both fantastical and dark, moody and playful, that would come to define both the artist and ambergris. So yeah, Martin Lake is a painter. It's not a very good one until suddenly he was a great one. And this story, or both the narratives, uh, is about that transformation here in this excerpt from Shriek's essay, we get some biographical information that is going to set the stage for us to really to enter the other narrative in media rest, which is, I think, a really important narrative move there. Lake spent his professional career in the big city of Ambergris, but he was born and raised in a small town outside the city of Stockton, which is uh, to say a place a uh, place that we would probably describe as provincial. His father was an insect catcher. Definitely, some new weird flavor going on there in that job title, or just you know job that exists at all. We'll get to see one at work in the uh, the second episode. And Lake never spoke about his mother, but one historian has proposed that she must have been responsible for the mysticism and the streak of the occult and the macabre that appears in Lake's art. Uh, that is totally not going to be true. And essentially, this is a story about what actually is responsible for that. And the other thing we need to learn about Lake's life in this section is that he's got two close friends, Jonathan Merrimount and Raph Constance. Uh, Raph, Constance was rumored to be Lake's lifelong romantic partner. Uh, We'll have to see if that is true as well. But these two friends are also great artists, and the three of them are something of an art movement, really, at least from this perspective of Janice Shriek several years, maybe even several decades after Lake's death. So, right, this has already been a lot of exposition here at the beginning of the recap, but I want to spend just one more minute talking about the world of this story before we move on. Shriek tells us that Lake had a leg injury that resulted from the combination of a childhood illness and then a few years later being struck by a motorized vehicle. As a result, he used a cane and also was then stooped because of using the cane. And those details, you know, they might matter later. But what I want to point out here is simply the motorized vehicle. Uh, Shriek makes a point of using motorized to modify vehicle, which suggests that in this world, vehicle does not automatically mean motorized. We've also got a bustling art scene here. That's what the story is going to be about. And so to me, at this point, at least, this feels a lot like Fin de Secla Paris. I mean, I know you said it felt like Fishtown circa 2011, Brandon, but to me, this feels a lot like Fin de Secla Paris, really maybe just a few years after Robert W. Chambers left Paris in the early 1890s. And so maybe actually not all that far removed from the type of Paris that we get in The King in Yellow, some of the stories that we've been reading in The King in Yellow. Uh, but I don't know, Brandon, maybe you've gotten a different impression at this point of, of what this city feels like.
1: No, that's exactly what it feels like. And it's what Vandermeer is going for is this feeling of a city at the height of kind of a cultural renaissance where the art world is kind of defining the culture of the city. And that, that'll that come more into focus as we get into the main Narrative, but I, I want to say that the opening of this story really surprised me because it's like two pages long in this edition. You don't really see that that it's an excerpt from this work by Janice Streak until you're, you know, three pages into the story. And so I thought that this was going to be the whole story. I was going to read a hundred pages of this type of prose and writing, and it, <laughs> it feels as though what we're going to get is a first-person account of the mysterious life of an artist by one of the artist's acquaintances. And it has this feel to it that reminded me of the film Amadeus, and that it looks like what we're really going to get is, is a parallel and subjective history to the one that maybe we're supposed to be vaguely familiar with from a rival or a critic or something along those lines. But you know, by the time I got to the end of this account by Janice Shriek, it really feels like this is just beginning. The story is just beginning. And it feels like this is a great introduction in in what is going to launch into a really strange tale, which does, but then the gears change. And this is, I think, just a superb bit of misdirection by Vandermeer. There are a few things I want to point out here, really emphasize because you've pointed them out. But the fact that the father is an in- insect catcher is a really important world building element in this story, even though it's backgrounded. Um, but it's very important. This kind of icon of insect catching is very important imagery to Martin Lake. Also, the nature of strange and occult elements in Lake's art is really important to highlight here. You know, one this gives us the sense that this religion that. Trafidian religion has these strange and occult elements to it, and that Lake's mother was a part of this religion as well. But what it really does is it adds an air of mystery to the story. And where at first it seems that we'll be getting Janice Streak's investigation into the strange and private world of Martin Lake, we soon find out that things are much stranger than even Shriek could have imagined as we continue on with the story. I am totally unopposed to a 100-page novella
0: that is actually just <laughs> a kind of academic essay about something going on <laughs> in a totally made-up secondary fantastical world, but uh, maybe not 100 straight pages of Janice Shriek's essay because one of the things that Vandermeer is doing, and we're going to see this throughout, and we'll, we'll break it down a little bit as we as we go. But one of the things that Vandermeer is doing here is poking a lot of fun at critics, and this thing is written in a tone that is. So self congratulatory, but also so full of nonsense at the same time that three pages at a time is is
1: all I can actually take. <laughs> I mean, this is someone I would not want to hang out with at a bar, Janice Shriek, for sure. No, and Martin Lake does not like her when he when he rents into her later on. Though she seems to be the only person willing to try to sell his art at least in, in Ambergris <laughs> before he becomes uh, a very popular artist. Her writing style comes from that sort of lofty position you see as people who have like really cracked it. People who don't enjoy the subjectivity, the kind of group experience of of, of spectatorship as you approach a painting or kind of the hermeneutic relationship that the painter has with his work and with his audience. And then the audience has with the work. Uh, That is to say one of interpretations. uh, She thinks she's really just... Got it. And since she kind of knew Lake, she must know everything about him. But one of the funny parts of the story, and there are many humorous bits, is the contrast between Shriek's confidence in her investigation skills and the actual events as they play out. Yeah though to be fair the events as they actually play out are totally
0: crazy and no one no one would believe them. I think even if uh, we had a firsthand account from Martin Lake himself and uh, maybe we've been dancing around Martin Lake uh, a little bit too much here. So let's start our story now the story proper at any rate. One blustery spring day in the legendary metropolis of Ambergris the artist Martin Lake received an invitation to a beheading. And that is the opening line here. And I really do promise that's the the last bit I'm going to read for quite a while, but I think it is an absolutely awesome opening line, right? Vandermeer teases us with something that's fairly crazy. And then in the next paragraph is going to pull back from that to focus not on the beheading, not on the invitation to it, but in fact, just on this blustery spring day. He's going to just tell us about Martin Lake's day. And This day is a significant moment in the political life of the city of Amigris because the leader of the city died only three days previously. This leader was named Voss Bender, and he was a composer. Exactly in what way a composer is the political leader of Amigris is totally unclear at this point. And what matters really is that the death was sudden, Uh, maybe it was a heart attack, maybe it was poison, and that there is now some kind of factional struggle going on. The struggle is probably happening behind closed doors, like among the, the city's elite. But for Lake, what matters on this day is that it is also happening at the street level, where gangs of Bender lovers and gangs of Bender haters are engaging in violent skirmishes. And these gangs have taken up colors, uh, red for the haters, green for the supporters, and and these color choices by Vandermeer, they're a bit loaded. They cannot help but recall the colored political factions in medieval Constantinople that were also tied to teams of chariot racers, uh, essentially gangs of football hooligans who also defined themselves by allegiance to certain political factions. Uh, but here, Vandermeer has replaced sports with classical music, with opera, uh, in fact. All of this is an irritation to Lake and and also presumably to loads of other people as well. And he's carrying around in his pockets a green flag and a red flag so that he can profess membership in whichever gang might pester him at any given moment. Because all Lake is really trying to do is go to the post office to get his mail. And there is some great stuff here about this post office. Uh, It's a post office that Lake hates, both because the archaic architecture is uh, not to his taste, and also because the service is poor due to the fact that the Postal Service is a private enterprise that has a legal monopoly on its trade, uh, which I have to say is an absolutely awesome dig on what uh, Nixon did to the American Postal Service, which uh, has certainly mattered in our uh, our public discourse here in the, the States uh, in the last last 12 months. But inside this post office, waiting for Lake is a Kafka esque nightmare, where the attendant who needs to get his mail, for him, will not do it unless Lake proclaims his allegiance to one of the colored factions, though eventually the attendant acquiesces, gets Lake's mail for him, which turns out to be only one thing. A maroon envelope with an elaborate seal on it, bearing no addresses of any kind, meaning that it was not actually mailed, but had to have been hand-delivered to this post office. And so that in itself is curious, but we are going to have to wait to find out what's in the envelope, though, right, we already know it's an invitation to a beheading, but this is where Vandermeer breaks the story, which is a great way to break it, a great place to break it off.
1: The seal that adorns the envelope is an owl-like mask. That's how it's described to us. And that doesn't seem so significant now. It seems like just another brilliant and beautiful detail uh, that is this text is so full of, but this will become important. I love the way that Vandermeer writes Lake's perspective in the opening of the story. Lake is full of wry observations, and he's irritable and irritated, and he's got this sense of ironic detachment. He has this thought regarding, you know, if he were to die today, what his gravestone would read, which is that it would be called the Voss Bender Memorial Gravestone, occupied by Martin Lake. And the occupied by Martin Lake would be in tiny letters because the city's going crazy. And Vandermeer really captures, I think, with this small joke about this gravestone, the fervor that has swept through the city to the point where even that, yes, the private services like the post office are completely disrupted and paralyzed by this need to proclaim an allegiance to a gang, What's really fascinating upon rereading this story is that though the postal service worker is dressed in red, they say an overripe tomato is, is like the color of this postal worker's clothing the Postal Service worker makes this comment that he doesn't think Voss Bender is dead. And both sides are kind of making this point that they don't think Voss Bender is really dead or that he might rise again or something along those lines. So there's already an element of uncertainty around this death of Voss Bender, which, again, is going to be significant. Right. And one of the things that Vandermeer does here that
0: we just don't notice until we start getting this rumor that Bender might not be dead uh, is to Really make sure that we understand that it's been three days since he may or may not have died, but since his since his death was announced, right? And of course, that's the gap between the death and resurrection of of Christ. And so that's something we're going to want to keep our eye on as we go through this story, as as well. But at this point, we we get another entry from Janice Shriek. Uh, this is going to be the pattern. Vandermeer is going to alternate between Shriek's essay and the narrative of Lake's day, or you know, Lake's transformation. It takes more than a day here, uh, but this part of the essay gives us some part of a description of the painting that Martin Lake does called Invitation to a Beheading, which she presents as the beginning of Lake's grotesqueries and also the controlled savagery of the oils with which he paints. Mostly, though, we learn some more about the post office, which actually features in the, the painting. And we learned that it had been originally constructed as a mausoleum for another former ruler of Ambergris, as well as his family, you know, hence the archaic architecture that Lake doesn't like. It is a very old building. And after the collapse of this ruling dynasty, the building remained a mausoleum, but was now used as a kind of potter's field, a sort of repository for the remains of the the unknown. And in this case, it was mostly indigent children, so presumably then, though this is not spelled out, but presumably then the remains of the ruler and his successor and also their their families were removed following the fall of that dynasty. And I, I think that this is a really nice touch. It's a nice way to connect us to the background of what is happening with the Reds and the Greens now, in that we see that Ambergris does not really go in for smooth and peaceful transfers of power.
1: No, it certainly doesn't. And it's it's kind of shocking to discover that the post office used to be a a place that housed the bones of children. And to think of your mail slot, as a kind of tomb for bones, is really just an ossuary, I guess. It's just a haunting image, and you know it's really clear from this section of Shriek's work that Martin Lake has incorporated some of the civic history of what is now the post office <laughs> into his painting. With the way you know he the cross hatching of some of his brush brushwork really evokes this sense of the post office, both as mortuary and ossuary. And Shriek points out that the art critic Leonard Venturi comments that there's some sort of difference here also between mere illustration and painting. That Lake isn't merely representing the post office and its civic history. He's not illustrating it, he's painting it. And I don't know how deep we'll wade into a conversation about aesthetics in the discussion, But I do want to point out that Vandermeer is making a point that perhaps Lake is making some sort of interpretive gestures in this painting. He's giving it a voice, as we'd call it in the writing world, which is partially the natural hand of the artist. But it's also something that the spectator can participate in, the, something that the artist is inviting the spectator into uh with regards to the interpretive space that the painting offers. It's suggesting these layers of images that also give us a sense of the history. And this point about the difference between illustration and painting might suggest that we don't get drawn into bad art in the same way that we do when the artist is inviting the spectator into their private vision. Anyway, it might turn out that this story is not really about aesthetics at all at the end of the day, which is why I'm hesitant to really wade into, I don't know, uh, an aesthetic discourse and try to attribute views to Vandermeer or something like that. You pointed out earlier, Glenn, that this Janice Street character is more of a way for Vandermeer to poke fun at critics. And that's what's happening. Shriek is giving us maybe a, a kind of generic gnostic critique of the painting, and then we get the the real story. But maybe aesthetics is about that too. Anyway, we've got a lot more to get through in this story. Well, we we do, but I, th- I think you're onto something here, right? And I think that this is
0: actually part of why to both of us it it felt like the setting felt like. Findacecla Paris or Belle Epoque Paris, we might say, where this is exactly a topic of conversation is what is the difference between illustration and painting or the the difference between illustration and, and art and what is painting for in a world that now has photography, right? What do we need paintings for if we can just take photographs of things, which was a topic of our conversation when we did the Robert W. Chambers King and Yellow story, The Mask, seemingly like a million years ago now at this point. But I do think that that's part of why this felt like this era in, in Parisian history for us, this era of art history. And I also don't think that's accidental, right? I think that Vandermeer wants us to be thinking about, you know people like Monet here uh, in this story, people who said, yeah, but I can still do things with painting that a camera can't do with with images. So uh, I'm going to do that. But I, yeah, I do think
1: we'll end up talking about that in the discussion here as well. well we're absolutely going to bring up stuff like that in the discussion as well. And and we'll get a reference later on to the symbolists and some of the other art referenced in this Story, particularly from Janice Streak, does call to mind the work of other famous artists from the sixteenth century forward. But we're really the symbolist movement was, you know, late nineteenth century, which is that Findisekla Paris, the belly pock. Uh, and it's it's that period of time where it really feels like in our cultural imagination that art ruled the discourse. You get the art for art's sake, art pour l'art, art, um, the symbolist movement, kind of moving into the surrealist movement, which moves into, you know, cubism and all of these different movements that take place over really the course of 100 years or so, 120 years. And this story feels not just like the belly pock, uh, which is the end of the 19th century, but also the lost generation kind of roaming around Paris in the 1920s, this kind of city under siege uh, or post being under siege and kind of the hope of renewal and all this other stuff that goes along with that as well. And kind of the art that comes from dislocation and hope, but then also the tragedy that underlies the need for both of those realities. Yeah. Those are
0: some things that Vandermeer takes up in in some of the other Ambergris stories that he tells. The novel Finch, in particular, feels uh, a lot more 1920s uh, than it does, you know, 1890s. Which I, th- I think this story feels like, or you know, 19 early 1900s, first decade of the 1900s here. And I'm looking forward to spending a little more time digging in on that feeling in in the references here when we do the discussion. But uh, next up, we've actually got a a fairly long chunk of the Lake narrative. It amounts to about 15% of the entire novella, but Vandermeer does break it up with a pause. So I'm going to follow his lead there. But this first bit has Lake at home with this mysterious envelope and its owl mask seal. So he opens the envelope and inside is a single sheet of parchment and it says, invitation to a beheading. You are invited to attend 45 Archmont Lane, 7 30 in the evening, 25th day of this month. Please arrive in costume. And that's it. So, uh, what's going on here is the question. <laughs> this is what Lake is wondering at this point. And of course, we already have a sense that this is serious because we've been getting bits of Shriek's essay. And so we know that something transformative is going to happen to Lake. But right now, he suspects that this is some kind of practical joke by his friends, except that. The envelope and the letter are flecked with gold and scented with an expensive perfume. Uh, the whole thing would cost a week of his own income from painting on commission, and that seems like a lot of money for a joke. Uh, this train of thought then is interrupted when his friend Raff drops by, uh, drops by outside his apartment building really, to, to call up to him, to shout up to him from the street that he should come with her to a bar. And he's going to do that in the next scene. But before we get there, I want to call attention to some of the world building that Vandermeer does in really what just amounts to a description of Lake opening an envelope. So we learn that Lake and his friends live in the bohemian part of Ambergris, a narrow mews crowded with cheap apartments and cafes and filthy with writers, artists, and actors— But now it's become crowded with people who want to be adjacent to such people. And the real artists are on the verge of being crowded out, uh, priced out probably as well. And I think this is where for both of us, Brandon, this felt like Fishtown (laughs) in Philadelphia, (laughs) right? It was exactly this detail, I think. But we also learn that there is a religious quarter and from his apartment, Lake can see the spires and the domes burning white and gold and silver and Vandermeer gives us all of this with also some street names and even the name of Lake's landlady and a few other incidental details. All of it builds up to paint a this really vivid picture of this world. And I, I think for you know, the fantasy writers in our audience, these five pages are an example of some top-notch world building. Also, some gorgeous prose in here.
1: Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head here where... These descriptions of ambergris really remind us of living in Fishtown, (laughs) you know, 10 or 12 years ago. The artists and bands and musicians moved in because housing and rent was cheap. And then a few gastropubs opened up and... Suddenly, the local union bars had to deal with ethnically and sexually diverse artists instead of, you know, third shifters coming off a night of manual labor and everything mixed in the strangest possible ways. And I I think Vandermeer has captured that sense of a place in transition better than almost any other writer I've read uh, who, you know. I've lived through it, so I kind of know what it's like. And I, I just, I'm in awe of Vandermeer's ability to really capture that feeling, the energy, and then also kind of the drabbiness of such a place at the same time. Right. And uh, yeah, what's just
0: not mentioned here is that uh, in, in three more years, Lake and his friends are going to have to move to Brewerytown or, you know, some other, some <laughs> other part of Philadelphia <laughs> in yeah. order to carry on actually. The Strawberry Mansion. <laughs> right. That's the only place where you can afford rent afford on an artist's income. But yeah, <laughs> this is a huge thing that that Vandermeer does so well in this story is is just capture and really bring to life, right? I say capture almost as if he's describing a real place because that's what it feels like. But of course, really, it's bring to life a place that he's envisioning. But just amazing world building in this story. I mean, it's really a model of how to do this. Well, we carry on now with this section. It's going to be about 10 pages now, but mostly those 10 pages are just hanging out at a bar. And that bar is called The Ruby-Throated Calf which is an absolutely awesome name. Maybe it's a calf with a red splotch on its throat, like when we say ruby-throated hummingbird. But maybe that's blood. And we're really talking about veal here. Uh, this is actually an image that I think is going to matter later. And I will say too, that the, the ruby throated calf feels very much like a Parisian cafe to me. Like artist friends are, are seated outside. They're enjoying watching the greens and the reds chase after each other. It just feels like a, a great place to hang out with some friends. Maybe that's just the, uh, the COVID lockdown, uh, in me speaking, just like <laughs> fantasizing <laughs> about going to a bar with some friends it just seems so amazing. So, this might actually be the most fantastical element of this of this story. <laughs> it feels that way now. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Well, before we get into anything happening, Vandermeer introduces us to Lake's friends really by more or less going around the table and telling us, A, what they look like, and then B, what type of art they do. Marimount combines painting and performance art. Uh, I don't really know what that actually would be. It sounds cool, I suppose. Uh, Marimount also is Lake's on again, off again romance. Uh, Currently off, but Lake would like it to be on. And there's a rather heartbreaking line here where Lake recognizes that he's bad for Marimount, and all their other friends know that. I think so often when we're telling this. Story: The protagonist, the point of view character, is the, the the person who's with you know the brood hunk who is bad for them, but it's actually the other way around here. Lake is the brood hunk who's bad for for Maramond, and I, I really appreciate <laughs> that twist on this. Uh, Raff paints huge, swirling, passionate cityscapes, which is totally my jam. So these are the paintings I want to check out. Uh, she's also the reason that Lake knows anyone else. Uh, she ran into Lake on his first day in Abergreece and just kind of adopted him. Uh, then there's Kinski, who makes mosaics from stuff he finds on the ground. And finally, Saunter, who makes abstract pottery and sculpture that is uh, vaguely obscene. That's the way <laughs> Vandermeer describes it. Uh, and these five form the core of a larger group of artists who are all hanging out at this bar. This is uh, an arrangement that is really itself a, a kind of miniature of the art scene in the city, where these are the important young artists, and then there are some some hangers-on, uh, really just kind of on the outside of uh, of that world. And Vandermeer gives us this great observation here that although these five are friends, they are also competitors. And so conversations can sometimes be awkward or or even just tense. And that while there is friendship here, there is also envy. And this really resonated with me. I mean, it reminded me of the end stage of grad school when suddenly all the friends that you made during the coursework and the exams and just general like hazing phase All those friends are now suddenly your competition for fellowships and postdocs and jobs. Uh, It's really this moment, right, when you realize that actually this is a zero-sum game and you're playing it against your best friends and it is not a good feeling. And I I really appreciated the way Vandermeer captured this here. It really uh, resonated with me and it also really brought this to life. It's just a a fantastic observation, I guess. But uh, I really want us to pause here and talk about the technique that Vandermeer uses to introduce these minor characters. Really talk about it from a craft perspective did this
1: way of introducing these minor characters did this work for you, Brandon? This absolutely worked for me. This might be you know my favorite scene, one of the most evocative scenes in the whole story. What Vandermeer does so well here what makes this scene work is that each character has a different voice, but they're all kind of a cacophony to lake since we're in lake's perspective, and lake is kind of as I pointed out. Earlier, a character who's full of this ironic detachment, who doesn't fully want to give himself into anything—that's part of why his art is struggling. Uh, also, we'll find out he's like using completely the wrong mediums <laughs> to do his <laughs> art, uh, and and Wrath helps him out here with that as well as we'll discover. What Vandermeer captures is this—you mentioned it's kind of end of grad school, but I read it more as this youthful. Creative energy that is all about bursting potential. Like they all know they haven't reached their apex yet as artists, because if they did, they wouldn't have all of this sense of hope and promise. They would just be kind of toiling away. But the business side, the realities of money and economics are. Starting to creep in and steal some of that joy and energy. And there's this real conflict within each of these characters and then with each other that create this really beautiful scene of a group of friends who, yes, are in conflict with each other, but who are also still want to work with each other. You know, it kind of reminds me of the stories you hear about the film school that Spielberg and George Lucas and. Francis Ford Coppola and John Milius all went to and how they all worked on each other's films in the 70s and 80s until they were like, well, now we're our own brand and we can't have people know that like, you know... Francis George Lucas was showing up on the set of uh, Apocalypse Now to help kind of frame and work out some of these action scenes. And that John Milius was on the phone with Steven Spielberg transcribing a a speech that shows up in Jaws, like all of this stuff. There's this creative community that they all rub off on each other. But you know that they're all going to kind of go their own ways and maybe not help each other in that way anymore. And what Vandermeer captures then is this moment of potential for the individual and the role that community plays in creating the art that works for all of these people. And it's just gorgeous. Having Lake feel like a kind of outsider and be a witness to all of this as well is why the descriptions and introductions of these characters work so well, too. Yeah, I really enjoyed this way
0: of introducing this mode of introducing these characters with these these attributes and just kind of going around the the table. It was it, it felt like a variation of the, you know, the getting the band together scene except done over really just a page and a half very succinctly but giving us real stark contrast in who these people are and and also I think really it's this this perfect melding I think of of art style with also what these characters are. Look like so. I think it's 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 really well done. All of this is just extraordinary. I mean, hey, Jeff Andemir, he's a pretty good writer. It turns out I don't know if people are you know <laughs> unaware of that. But uh, that's your public service announcement for the for the day. Well, all right, let's get to the the conversation at the bar. This is going to also give us some world building and also very slyly introduce the background information that we need once the plot gets moving again. First, we come to realize that. Although this business at the post office made the, the greens and the reds seem really like the sharks and the jets and the whole thing like maybe a silly snap fight, there is actual violence happening on the streets. The leader of the city is dead and there is no procedure for succession. It's not even a shared set of constitutional principles. And so now there is factional violence and the violence is real and it has the capacity, the potential to spill out and bring other people who are uninvolved into it. Uh, Second, though, we get reinforced here something that had been introduced already, which is the rumor that Voss Bender is not actually dead. No one has seen a body, so who knows what might actually be going on. And finally, we get back to the the matter of the invitation. Lake quietly asks Raph what she thinks is going on and and whether he should go to 45 Archmont Lane. And Raph suggests that There might be something tawdry going on here, like someone interested in getting him to paint some pornography, which is apparently a thing that some of the other people hanging out at the cafe right now uh, have have done for money before. But ultimately, she tells him that he needs to start taking more risks if he wants to become a great artist. And she reminds him that whatever the commission is, he can always say no. And uh, we'll see next episode if that is true or not.
1: Yeah. It is a line of really just delicious irony <laughs> in this story. Raph saying you can always say no is so beautiful. Another thing I want to point out here, because it's going to relate to the next section, is how Wake tells Raph that he can't do the work that he wants to do because he s- cannot capture the light of ambergris the way he wants. And as I said, that's a problem with his uh, uh, artistic medium. It's not like a technique problem. It's that he's just he's using the wrong materials, uh, and and Raff kind of helps him with that. So, you know, given what it's going to take to get Lake to mature and transform into this great artist. We're going to have to think about whether or not Raph is a a hero or a villain in this (laughs) story. She's certainly a great catalyst for this group of friends and a great artist in her own right. But uh, I don't think she knows the dangers involved in, in becoming great. Well, there's a real sinister reading of
0: Raph's character here that uh, we will have to take up in the future because I don't want to spoil what's going on for people who might be reading along, you know, at this pace with us. But um, uh, there's going to be some some confusion about the identity of some characters that we're going to meet in the next episode, and uh, maybe maybe Raf will uh, will appear again. Uh, it's a reading we'll have to we'll have to address. But we've got one more interlude from Janice Shriek here, and then just one more bit of the Lake narrative for this episode before we get into the the second recap. Uh, here in this scene, Shriek describes. Lake as a painter who's fascinated with the city of Amagris itself, or the, the buildings and also the people. She describes the, the panels that make up a, a series of, of paintings that is called the Albemuth Boulevard Triptych uh, done by Martin Lake. Each of these show the back of a man standing on Albemuth Boulevard at dawn. Uh, at noon and dusk, respectively, and he's alone, but surrounded by pedestrians. And although the, the setting is the same in each panel, the perspective shifts slightly so that the progression feels like the city is encroaching on the central figure. And the details as well change as we progress toward dark, with the the people becoming more animal-like, and then the, the pigeons on the buildings transform into gargoyles by the time we get to
1: the dusk painting. It sounds very cool, Uh, It also sounds like it might be a metaphor. One thing that Shriek also points out here is that Lake has perfectly captured the light of ambergris, which we just learned, as I pointed out, was this kind of artistic bugaboo. But Shriek also uh, compares Lake's work to the symbolist painter Darstin Baldo. And this is a reference, clear reference, to the mid to late 16th century Italian painter Archimbaldo. Who used like found objects and fruit to represent faces and stuff. And some of this technique feels like it goes into the more like surrealist art movement of which Dali and uh, Magritte were a part of. Uh, But... I want to talk briefly about the symbolists here just to make sense of this reference and how it might relate to Lake's art. The symbolists were painters in the late 19th century who were reacting against realism as the main focus of artistic representation. As we pointed out, realism got replaced by photographs and so painters needed to figure out what they were for. So the symbolists wanted to focus on symbols. Uh, Glenn, you said metaphor earlier, but uh, could also just as easily be a symbol. Um, they wanted to represent the world more through symbols, more through symbols than by realistic representation. And artists in this movement included Paul Gauguin and Gustav Klimt and Edvard Munch. Uh, there was also a focus on the erotic and the spiritual, especially esoteric spirituality and, you know, mythic art, uh, you know, also on dreams, like how to represent dreams. So really, this was a move in the artistic world to Give value to more poetic representation. Symbolism, the symbolist movement was also a big part of the poetic world with like Baudelaire. And I think even if you read uh, Yeats' poems, which, you know, he's a 20th century poet, he was really heavily influenced by this movement as a poet himself. We're going to get a lot more descriptions of paintings in
0: this story. And so I'm really looking forward to in the discussion actually talking about like what we think might be some real world analogs to Lakes paintings in particular. But I, I will say just at this point that I think that this description, right, this, this triptych, this album with Boulevard triptych of all the paintings that were, are going to be described for us as, as the novella continues, this is the one that I would most like to to see, Yeah, that, that I, I really most wish was like a real thing that we could go see and not something simply that exists in, uh, in Vandermeer's
1: imagination. Yeah, I love triptychs and I'll just, I don't know, suggest what I think it's going to be an analog to now. Uh, the way that Shriek describes this triptych is really evocative of both Bosch, uh, well, because of his famous triptych, the garden of earthly delights and Magritte, who, whose most famous painting is, uh, the painting of a pipe called Sessiness Poly Peep, which says, you know, this is not a pipe, but whose other artwork um, strangely feels like it's influenced a lot of advertising art in the like early part of the 21st century, but who did a lot of these faceless men, of men being replaced by objects and things like that, their faces, you know, the apple face with the hat and, you know, just. It really just reminds me of, you know, kind of the painting merging with the background, all these sorts of things that remind me a lot of Magritte, who's a painter I love. But the triptych element, the kind of chaos element, the feeling that it might be more of a hellscape of things kind of crowding in on this person, this faceless person who's turned away from the. Artist. So we're looking at their back as a spectator of art here. Uh, really reminds me of this kind of Bashian and, you know, Magritte type of combination. I don't know. Though I, you know, if I, people, I guess, whoever you're more familiar with is the painters you're going to think are going to fit this bill.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have different responses to this entirely, but I'm going to save that until we've got the rest of the descriptions under our belt. So that's just a little tease for an argument that we will have in uh, uh, in six weeks. I guess we'll have that we'll have that fight. But uh, all right. We are at the last section that we are going to do for this episode. It's a, a short dream. Now, of course, we don't know it's a dream at the start, and it begins with Lake waking up and seeing someone in his apartment, and he, he thinks it's Maramount, uh, or, you know, he hopes it's Maramount, I suppose. And it's not. It's not anyone Lake knows, but it is a man, and he has his eyes closed. But when he opens them, they are the moon, and red moonlight shines from them, which is a cool image. It's also a great bit of world building there to let us know that the moon in this world is red, says red light. Uh, What really is going on here though, right? Is that this man has a knife and he destroys Lake's brush hand with it. And in the dream, Lake understands that he will never paint again. And he wakes up shrieking. And that is where we're going to
1: pause. And we will uh, pick up the story again in, uh, in two weeks. Yeah, this is the first genuinely weird element of this story. The first kind of intrusion of horror on to the... Already kind of strange world. You know, we're going to find out there are mushroom people and stuff like that in ambergris, but this is just this element that is explicitly weird. And I wonder, you know, if Lake's dream might be some sort of manifestation of a death instinct, like a a wish for Lake to remove his gift of art so that he no longer has to worry about the sorts of things that he's been burdened with as a professional artist, like being poor or, you know, the anxiety that maybe he's going to have to go to some rich dude's house and paint him having sex with somebody else. Or the fact that what he's for is for rich people to pay him to make use of his talent in some way. It's maybe not pornographically related, but we'll see. as he's thinking about the commissions that he gets, that they just don't make use of him. And so like, where's his voice? What is he doing? If he could remove this gift of art from himself, yes, he might be sad, but then he wouldn't have to worry about all this stuff. So it is a kind of death instinct, a, a wish to return to a point or kill off this stuff that is causing him anxiety. And it could also be the case that the dream is maybe some of odd form of rebirth, where his old manufacturing skill, his ability to make with his hand, is stripped away, and then that's going to leave room for something new. In any event, this is a very odd dream. And honestly, after reading this story twice uh, pretty closely, I'm not—I'm still not sure if it's even a dream. It might just be a weird thing that happened. And. Left no trace. So that's just kind of the feel of the dream in the story. Vandermeer is a master of, of this sort of thing. This type of
0: scene, the sort of wake up, someone weird is in your room and something's going on. and then, But hey, wait, was it a dream? Was it not a dream? Vandermeer is a real master of that sort of thing. This is the only place where that's going to show up in this story. But this really called to mind a, a scene that we get in the the Ambergris novel Finch as well, though my memory of that probably a little fuzzy, but, but really called that to mind. And he's done that in some other places also. But this is going to have to be the tease where we're going to break things off. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman,
1: And I'm Brandon Buda. We hope you'll join us on our forum at ClayTempleMedia.com or our subreddit, which is ClayTempleMedia, to talk to us about the first part of this story. Uh, there are things I'm sure we didn't discuss, but it's a big story, so we're moving through it and we'll hopefully be able to wrap everything up in our discussion episode. But... If you feel like there's something you want to talk to us about, join us. We'd love to engage with you about what we've covered so far. And I would be especially interested in talking with the many
0: writers in our audience about uh, this introduction of the the minor characters at the bar, uh, whether you thought that was good craft or if that sort of disrupted the story that was going on, or like, I think it would just be totally fun to practice that technique. Uh, it might be fun to you know, describe yourself or people in your life. We'd love to read some of that. That would be a lot of fun. And while you're on the internet doing that, we hope you'll check us out at patreon.com slash clay temple media. We would love to have you join us there. Your support is the only way that this show and all the other shows on the network stay on the air. And we've just released a really great episode for everybody on the T.E.D. Klein novella, Nadelman's God. Super fun episode, and we hope to see you there. Uh, Next time, we're going to be back with the second half of The Transformation of Martin Lake. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.